And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God has given you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. This is uh, obviously a famous passage that you all are familiar with. And uh, I was rather abrupt in bringing it to you for a reason. Uh, Typically, when we think about the covenants in our church down at Green Lake, we're going through all the covenants of the Bible. And I got stuck with with the hard one. I got the Mosaic Covenant. Because everyone, when they come to the Ten Commandments, it's kind of similar to the Sermon on the Mount. They feel the condemnation. Oh my gosh, I did this, I lied here. Or, oh my gosh, I didn't take a Sabbath day this week. Or, I didn't do this, I didn't do that. And even with, especially outside of the church, in our culture, we think of the Ten Commandments as the gateway to get to heaven. Okay, you do these things and you keep them, and then you get to go to heaven. And uh, that, is, that is kind of the way we approach the scripture. We approach it much in the same way the original hearers responded to hearing God's booming voice from Mount Sinai. How did they respond? Exodus 20, verse 18. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off. Much in the same way, that's Exodus 20, 18. Much in the same way the original hearers kind of were, were rebuked and just kind of just fell back from the mountain in fear, we approach the Mosaic Covenant. We approach the Ten Commandments in the same way. We don't hear the gospel. We hear benchmarks of behavior. And I want to compel you today to see that the Mosaic Covenant is two things. It is a continuation of God's story. I see in your bulletin a quote about how we don't remember, know who we are as Christians unless we see each other within God's story. I want to encourage you today that the first thing, word of encouragement, is that the Mosaic Covenant is a part of God's story unfolding him pursuing us as his people. It began with Adam, where he entered into a relationship that he created humanity and he gave human beings dominion over the earth. And Adam and Eve were supposed to go throughout the earth exercise and dominion, being fruitful and multiplying. Well, they fell in the garden, and then we see that the Noahic covenant, God recapitulates. He explains again. He, he gives the, the covenant again to Noah and says, be fruitful and multiply, Genesis 9, verse 23 through 24. But then Noah's kids are, are not, not, uh, not too nice. You know, they, they, they're killing each other, and they're doing horrible things. Uh, they, they build the Tower of Babel. And God disperses the people. And he says, you know what? I'm going to have to send a missionary to pursue these people. And he sends the most unlikeliest, oldest missionary, Abraham. And he says to Abraham, all nations will be blessed through you. 
And so we get to the Mosaic Covenant, and God's saying the same thing. Obey my covenant, and you will be a blessing to the nations. So that's the first thing for us to realize is that the Mosaic Covenant is not about do's and don'ts. It is part of God's pursuit of humanity. And the second thing, and the most powerful thing, is that the, the, we have to see that it is God's love, God's actions in the past, God's saving deeds that are actually a backdrop to the Mosaic Covenant. So here, let's read our text for today, which is Exodus 19, 1 through 6. Three months after walking through the desert, the people of Israel come to Mount Sinai. Exodus 19, verse 1. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain. So the Lord calls to out of the people of Israel. They're standing before this great mountain. And he calls Moses to go into the mountain. There's no fire. There's no earthquake just yet. It's just God's voice calling Moses. And he says to Moses, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. And for all the, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom for priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your precious promises that you have a destiny and an identity for your people. You have a mission for us. Lord, but before we even embrace that mission and embrace that identity, help us today. Help me today to really understand that you love us and have done mighty things on our behalf. We pray this, Lord, that you will open up our ears, soften our stony hearts, and help us to hear the gospel and not a word of condemnation. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So uh, we'll talk a little bit about our ministry, but uh, we have uh, my wife and I, Foxy and I, uh, we're originally from Tacoma. We live in Seattle. We were school teachers in Central and South Seattle, and then we went to seminary, as Nate said, and uh, for two years we've been back in the center part of Seattle called the Central District, and uh, predominantly uh, African-American, Japanese, um, multi-ethnic community, and um, by God's providence, we own a cafe, I'll tell you about that later, and uh, through this cafe, we're turning it into a nonprofit. So this past summer, we received a grant from the city to employ youth in the neighborhood who are struggling with um, gang violence or prostitution or um, just have a, a struggle in terms of their home life. So we're employing them and giving them a job for the summer and the city approached us in our orientation and said, okay, here, you're gonna get this grant and you're gonna pay these kids. Now these kids are at-risk youth. These kids are the roughest of the rough. So what you need to do is not pay them at first because if you pay them at first, as soon as they get that check, they'll what? They'll leave. They're gone, okay, after the first week. So they, they tell you, to, okay, what you need to do is hold that carrot in front of them and just say, okay, if you behave this way, then you'll get your, your paycheck. If you, if you don't do this, then you won't get the paycheck. I mean, if you do this, you won't get the paycheck. So hand out the, dally the reward in front of them and give them a consequence as motivation 
to be good citizens and be good workers. And um, I don't know if you've worked with youth before, or maybe you don't even have to say you work with youth. If you have kids, you probably understand the struggle it is to motivate someone toward good behavior. Because we typically learn as parents or as teachers or youth workers that, okay, you did this wrong, so Johnny, you go to your room. Or Johnny, if you don't eat your, your peas, I'm going to do this. Or if you don't behave this way, I'm going to take the car from you. Or go to your room. Or all those types of things you've heard before. We set out the rule, the consequence, as a motivation for good behavior. But I want to help us to and remind us of what we already know already, that this is not the gospel. That is not gospel motivation. In fact, they teach us in seminary that we should always look at the indicatives, God's great truths, God's great actions, God's, the beauty and power of God's character. That and his love for us should motivate us to good behavior, not I'm going to get you and if, or I'm going to throw you in hell and, therefore, or, and if you want to avoid hell, you need to do these things. Again, that's how we approach the Bible. That's how we approach the Ten Commandments. But in today's text, we see what? Exodus 19, verse 4. He tells them, here is, here is what should motivate you to obey my covenant. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and I brought you to myself. It is God's great indicatives. I've, I am the Lord your God, or um, I've taken you out of, out of the house of slavery. Exodus 20, verse 1. Therefore, Exodus 20, verse 2, you shall have no gods before me. Or Jesus in Matthew 28. All authority in heaven and earth has been given over to me. Now, therefore, go into all the nations, making disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. As Christians are parenting, I know you've been in a parenting series, it should not be fear that drives our parenting or fear of, of, um, of retribution or condemnation that should drive us, right? It should be you are my son. You are my son. Therefore, as my son, you behave this way. Right? Here, the Lord God says, I am your God. I am your Savior. Therefore, you should act this way. It is God's great loving power, his deeds, that should drive us. Not to see this as labors and slavery towards an ethic of Ten Commandments. Not so that we can be good moral Christians. But it should be... Our identity is driven and, and forged by God's great work, God's identity, God's great love for us. The indicatives should follow the imperative. So we're going to go through three indicatives based out of Exodus 19.4. And it should be remind us, this should be God's reminder to us today that it is his great works drive us to obedience. The first thing, Exodus 19 verse 4, you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt. The first thing that should drive us towards obedience to the covenant, to the Ten Commandments, is that God has routed the enemy. God has, has fought back the Egyptians. This is what he's doing. He's saying, look, three months ago, do you remember those ten plagues that I, that I inflicted upon Egypt, the most powerful country in the world at that time? Do you remember the, the river filled with blood? Do you remember the gnats? Do you remember the flies? Do you remember the locusts? Do you remember the plagues on the firstborn? And how... Pharaoh said, I'm going to make you work even harder and I'm never going to let you go. Do you remember that I, I threw the army into the sea? For a cross-reference, Exodus 15, Moses says, Then Moses 
and the people of Israel sang this song after they crossed the Red Sea. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. 15 verse 2. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God and I will praise him. My father's God and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. The Lord is a warrior. Verse 4. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea. And his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, Pharaoh said, I will pursue, I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. But you blew with your wind, and the sea covered them. They sank the lead, the, in, like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, and the earth swallowed them. These are glorious words that Moses is praying. He's doing what? He's remembering that God has destroyed the enemy. He has routed the enemy. So when we come to Exodus 19, verse 4, he's reminding them. Just before he lays down all the rules, all the fire insurance, right? It's a joke. uh, Before he gives them the Ten Commandments, before he even gives them the covenant, he says, I have acted covenantally for you already. I have destroyed the enemy. I have routed Egypt. And that is supposed to compel them to act accordingly to the covenant. It reminds uh, me of about 14 years ago. Um, I, you guys don't know this about me, but I'm a band nerd. In fact, when I walk, walked in and I heard the trumpet and the French horn, I was like, yes, I like this church already. I'm a, I'm a trumpet player, but I played the baritone and marching band at the University of Washington. And uh, I remember our first year, uh, my first year in the marching band was a horrible year for the Huskies. Uh, it ra- rained like 98 days straight that fall. And, uh, and if you've ever been to Husky Stadium, it is right next to the water. And it's beautiful this time of year. But come November, you've got wind chill blowing through there. You're wearing a purple polyester monkey suit. And it's just really, really cold. And uh, it just so happened that it wasn't just cold and wet. But it was also that we sucked that year. Can I say that? Is that okay to say that? They, we were horrible that year. Uh, we, had, we had football teams that were, had horrible records, three and six, coming in and just doing awesome deeds, uh, embarrassing us as a, as a school. I remember one year USC came in, and their quarterback, I, I, he's probably not in the NFL, he's probably working at Burger King or something. And, uh, he's, but back then he was a stud. So, like, we had this guy. I remember there was, like, two guys jumping towards him. He flips over them and lands in the end zone. And we lost the game on that touchdown. I was just like, you know, why am I in marching band? And uh, I remember we were in marching band, and we're supposed to, like, pep up the crowd. We're, we're, same, we're in the same group as the – we're supposed to be as peppy as the cheerleaders. And I remember sometimes that we would just be like – the cheerleaders would call us to do a dance or a, or a song, and we just were not acting accordingly to what we were supposed to be. be. I mean, we were just really low on spirit. And, uh, and I never forgot, I used to tease, 
I used to laugh at this portion of the game, but I remember at the end of the third quarter, just before our fourth quarter beatdown, there would be, they would bring out some alum from Husky lore. Because in the early 90s, under the Don James era, are there any football fans? Because I'm just, I feel like I'm just talking. Okay. <laughs> under the Don James era, the Huskies were actually really good. We were like world champions, and, and they, they, were, they beat Michigan a couple times. They went to the Rose Bowl like three years in a row or something like that. They would bring out these old guys limping onto the field, and, they, and they'd be like, oh, look, it's, it's uh, Billy Joe Holbert from 1991. And everyone in the crowd would just get whipped up. And even though we were about to lose, we would just get so hyped up. And I remember as, as in the March Man, that was something I began to cherish and look forward to, a reminder of God's, of, of, of not God's, but the dog father's great deeds. <laughs> but you see what, where I'm going with this, right? We had, we had to be reminded as, as band nerds of the deeds of the past to compel us to be peppy and, and spirit-filled. Even today, we need to be reminded that God has routed the enemy. The, the, the original context here is they needed to be reminded three months later, after walking through the wilderness, not having anything to eat, not having anything to drink, they were struggling. And they finally get to this mountain, and God reminds them that I have delivered you, I have saved you out of slavery. Likewise, we too need to be remembered that Christ has liberated us. He has saved us. Remember the times before you knew the Lord. How bitter a person you were. How you were enslaved and addicted to all types of things. And how you had no joy in your life. And God wants to remind you today that I have saved you from all those things that scourged you. How you were enslaved. You no longer have to walk and act and think as a slave to sin, because on the cross of Christ, I saved you and I delivered you. I parted, not the Red Sea, but my son's flesh on the cross on your behalf. God wants to remind you that I have routed the enemy and I've put Satan under your feet. But the reality is, is that as much and as glorious uh, uh, the gospel is and how we get excited and we hear about the gospel and how much God has done for us, in Christ Jesus, you and I forget quite easily. We are like the Pharisees in John chapter 8. Remember, they're going toe-to-toe with Jesus, and Jesus says, you know, if you knew Abraham, you would, uh, you would listen to my voice. And he goes, oh, we're, we're not, uh, we're, we're children of Abraham. We're not illegitimate children. Do you remember that passage? And they're going back and forth, and he says, uh, he says but you guys are slaves to sin. And then what, what is their response? Oh, we've never been slaves to anybody. You realize how funny that is? Okay, these are Pharisees. They're supposed to know the Bible really well. They're Jews, right? And they go, well, in our history, we've never been slaves to anybody. Kind of funny given that, that like the, that's like the whole background that Jesus or God reminds the people that I saved you out of Egypt. We, too, are the same way. In fact, we approach Exodus 20. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the land of Out of the house of slavery, you shall have no other gods before me. We worship our careers. We worship our spouses. We worship our children. Don't tell me that I need to put my kid into private school. Or don't tell me my kid needs to go to public school. And we have fights in the church even about how to raise our kids. Because our kids are our gods. We worship our bodies. We worship our toys, the things that we buy. We 
replace God with all types of idols. And why is that? It's because we lack gratitude. We lack the memory that we were once slaves. When he says you shall make no carved image for yourselves, we have all these huge HD screens all over the place in every, house, every room of the house. We have all types of toys. I remember I, I was just down this weekend in our um, neighborhood, and this guy is just massaging his car. He's not washing it. He's massaging it. <laughs> we have all types of idols. And why, is it, why do we have idols? We have idols because we don't really have a sense of gratitude for all that God has done for us. And so I don't, I don't know you. This is not my congregation, but I want to challenge you to think. Why is it that I cling to my to respect, to approval, to my possessions so closely? I want you to think through what are the things that replace God as your one and only true Lord. And I want you to recall what it was like. Remember your slavery. Remember what it was like before you knew Christ. Because that, in part, is a key to you following and really worshiping God for who he is. Lord, I thank you for who you are. I thank you that you are my God and my king. I thank you for forgiving me of my sins. Make a pattern of repenting and praising God for the blood of Jesus. At the end of the day, in the middle of the day, at the beginning of the day. Reminding yourselves of God's great mercy. You have that, obviously, in the bread and the wine every Sunday, but every day remind yourselves that you have been delivered from the power of Satan. But God does not just give you, remember, tell you to remember that, hey, I routed the Egyptians. He also wants to remind you of something else. Back to 19 verse 4. He says, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings. That's the second truth, the second indicative in this passage is that God has delivered you. He's lovingly cared for you. The image is that God is an eagle. And in um, cross-referencing Deuteronomy 32.11, where he says that Yahweh is an eagle who swoops down and catches you as you're falling out of the nest, and he picks you up with his talons and carries you on his back. God here is seen as an eagle, not a demanding taskmaster who wants you to be good moral people. He wants you to know that he loves you, and that he's carrying you on eagle's wings. The image there is just the same as when the Spirit of the Lord hovered like an eagle over the formless creation. God is saying, I care for you. I love you. This is not the image we see. We see Charlton Heston with the two, like, um, the, what do you, plastic tablets and Yule Brenner chasing him in the, the chariot. You guys know what I'm talking about, right? Okay, we, we don't, we see the fire and, the, and the, the gloom. We don't hear that God actually loves us, that God is actually with us. And neither did the original context. Remember that earlier in this uh, couple passages, they're, uh, they're, as soon as they get out of, across the wilderness, they're thirsty. And they're crying out, we're thirsty, we're thirsty. Give us water. Why did you lead us out here? When we could have been in Egypt slaves drinking wine and grapes and drinking all types of milk and, and water and honey. And I always thought when I was a kid that that is crazy. That they're just like, why are they calling? Why are they complaining so much? Then they get, to, they get further in the desert and they're hungry. And they're like, why did you send us out here? We had meat pots. 
Exodus uh, 16. We had meat pots in Egypt. We had onions and leeks and garlics. Why did you save us? Why did you deliver us from the enemy? And God is saying, no, I carried you on eagle's wings. I know this is corny. I'm going to read it anyway. But I fell in love with this poem when I was a young person. And it holds true today. Listen carefully. One night I dreamed. And I was walking along the beach with the Lord. Many scenes from my life flashed across the sky. And each scene I noticed footprints in the sand. Sometimes there were two sets of footprints. Other times there was one set of footprints. This bothered me because I noticed that during the low periods of my life, when I was suffering from anguish, sorrow, and defeat, I would see only one set of footprints. So I said to the Lord, You promised me, Lord, that if I followed you, you would walk with me always. But I have noticed that during the most trying periods of my life, there have only been one set of footprints in the sand. Why, when I needed you most, you have not been there for me? And the Lord replied, The times when you have seen only one set of footprints, my child, it is then that I carried you. Mary Stevenson, 1936. This is what the Lord is saying. I've carried you on eagle's wings. And he says that with the backdrop that we have the same mentality as, as the author here. That we, in the difficult times when we're in the desert and we're thirsty, we feel that God has forsaken us. We come to church on Sunday after just arguing with our spouse or agonizing over how to raise our kids. And we don't love each other as we used to. Or we come to church on Sunday and our bodies are aching. And we struggle with ailments of all kinds. Or we struggle with employment. We've been looking for work over and over only to be rejected. No, we, looked for, we thought of someone else who better fit what we were looking for. And we go and we go, Lord, you have forsaken me. Lord, where are you? Why am I still struggling with the same things over and over and over again? Why is it that I cannot do this, or my spouse doesn't do this, or my child doesn't do this, or I don't have this, or I don't have that? And God is saying, no, don't despair. Don't think that this is a hopeless situation. Remember that I have cared for you. Remember that I have rained down bread from heaven on top of you. I have sent quail when you are hungry. I have given you water when you are thirsty. The Lord is saying to you, I have carried you on eagle's wings. And the difficulty, the, the problem that we have is the same as the original context. That we don't remember rightly. We look back and see the pain. We see one set of footprints and think it is us walking all by ourselves. Brothers and sisters, I want to remind you that that is a trick of the devil. Deceiving you that you are walking alone. You just saying at the beginning of this uh, service, Martin Luther's a mighty fortress is our God. And about how Satan is a powerful enemy and there is none like him on the earth. But God has sent a man of his own choosing to fight back the enemy. And with one word, the enemy flees. Today you are hearing a word from the Lord. 
that God is with you and will never leave you nor forsake you no matter what you're going through. No matter how much you hate your job or don't understand your roommate or can't get the marriage that you'd like or the career that you like or the education that you like to remember that God has provided for you and has taken care of you. When I was in seminary, my wife and I, we, 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 we struggled. I'm sure Nate probably, or Trevor has said the same thing. Seminary is hard. We, I was working two jobs, going through seminary. We had two kids at the same time. We were relatively new. We'd only been married a couple years prior to, a year prior to seminary. And there were times where we didn't know where our food was going to come from. And I remember, I remember going, Lord, things were so much easier when I was a school teacher. And we were making at least, you know it's bad when the teacher is making a lot of money. But I was thinking, man, this was so good. Like, I was making like $28,000 a year. And I began to lament about how, thing, how bad things are. And I remembered, I remember one time just sitting down at a park watching my kids play with my wife and yes we didn't have money yes we didn't have a lot of food yes we were overworked and I wasn't doing well in school but God had to remind me that I have cared for you I have given you my son I have given you hope and joy in the midst of sorrow beauty for ashes strength for fear gladness for mourning and peace for despair I want to remind you, brothers and sisters, family of God, that no matter what you're going through or have gone through, to remember rightly that God has cared for you and sustained you even until now. And if he has done so in the past, he will do so further in the future. Therefore, stay committed to the covenant. This should be our godly gospel motivation. Not fear because you didn't perform here and you didn't perform there. But love because God is with you. And finally, God gives you, give us, because I'm a good Presbyterian, I give you a third point. There's a third motivation in Exodus 19, verse 4. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. He's routed the enemy. And how I carried you on eagle's wings. That's the second. And the third is that I brought you to myself. I brought you to myself. This is, this is clear. I mean, it's evident. The first two were past tense deeds that God has done. And now this, this is truth that God is confronting them, not just with words, but with himself. And the very next words, it says here on Exodus 19, verse 7, you don't have it unless you have your Bible with you. So Moses came, and he called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, yes, yes, we don't know what the covenant is, but we'll do it. They, they, they said, hey, we'll do it because of what God has done. And so Moses said, reported all the words to the people. And the Lord said to Moses, behold, I'm coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. And so the word describes in Exodus 19, on the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. I don't know when's the last time you've been in an earthquake, but it's kind of freaky. And, uh, here they're standing before a mountain and the mountain is shaking and all of a sudden it's clear blue skies like today and it becomes, the, the sky starts becoming racked with cloud after cloud of darkness. And God touches the mountain and when he touches the mountain, the mountain not only quakes, but it shoots up flames and fire like, a, like a, an oven. 
The smoke went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder and louder and louder. And Moses spoke, and God answered him in the thunder. And the Lord came down to Mount Sinai, to the top of the mountain. This is kind of scary. And yet, this is also our power, our hope, that God is a God who is not just transcendent and far off, and he just tells you, hey, guys, here's some rules to throw at you. Good luck with that. He doesn't do that. He comes to you. But let's be honest with ourselves that it is also, even though it's our great comfort, and it is the, it is the blessed beauty, the terrible beauty of this passage, it is also the thing that repels us from him. Because what do the people of God do when they see and hear the Ten Commandments yelling at them, audibly hearing God's voice? What is it that they do? You can talk to me. What do they ask? They can't what? They can't stand it. They They can't take the trauma of God's great power and glory and holiness. They can't take it. God comes near to them and they step back. And they need someone to intervene. I'll ask you another question. Who is that? Moses. I know you don't have the text, but you guys have seen the movie. Come on. (laughs) And the Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people lest they break through. I'm sorry, wrong passage. Uh, Exodus 20, 18. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us, please, and we will listen. But do not let God speak to us lest we die. See, they need someone that they can touch. They need someone that they can look to to be an intermediary between an awesome, awful, terrible, beautiful, powerful, loving God. Because God, when he comes to us, we cannot stay the way we are and be so near to him. Our flesh repels from him. You know this when you break the covenant, when you lie, when you cheat, when you commit adultery with your eyes and with the lust of your heart. You acknowledge that you cannot stand in the presence of a holy God. And you need someone to hold on to. I'm a jokester, so... I can't help, I have a sense of humor, I can't help it. But this reminded me of a song by Bonnie Taylor in the early 80s. If you can picture kind of the synthesizers and the early, you know, the keyboard and everything. I need a hero. You know this song? <laughs> Where have all the good men gone? Where are all the gods? Where are the streetwise Hercules to fight the rising odds? Is there a white knight upon a fiery steed? Late at night I toss and turn and dream of what I need. I need a hero. I'm holding out for a hero till the end of the night. He's got to be strong and he's got to be fast and he's got to be fresh from the fight. I need a hero. I'm holding out for a hero till the morning light. He's got to be sure and he's got to be soon and he's got to be larger than life. I want to remind you, as corny as that sounds, that you need a hero. You need someone to hold on to. And Christ is that mediator, is he not? Moses was a broken man who had anger problems, who struck the rock and many times wanted to give up on the people of God. But we have a mediator who is with us now, who is keeping us, who prays for us. He is someone that we can hold on to. Or can we? Because in Acts chapter 1, 
Last I checked, Jesus isn't sitting with us physically. Jesus ascended on heaven and the angel said that he will come again one day in the same way that he left. But we don't have someone that we can hold on to. Right? See, they teach you in theology classes to, when you're reading the Bible to know what time it is. You see, in Exodus, what time it was is that they had a mediator in Moses, someone they, they could touch and hold. In the first century, we, in A.D. 30, they had Christ who walked among us, who was God with us, someone we could hold. But now it's 2011. It is well past the time where Jesus walked the earth physically. Who do we have to hold on to? Who do we have as an intermediary? Who is our hero? If you know your Bibles, you know the answer. Is course, of course it is Christ. Christ in us. Christ in the body. Christ in you. In Christ Church Bellingham. It is the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, I will not leave you or forsake you. I will not keep you orphans. I will give you the comforter. I will give you the Holy Spirit. So much so that Peter says in 1 Peter... Chapter 2, he says, as you come to him, a living stone, 1 Peter 2, verse 4, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. This very same words in Exodus 19. A holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but you have received mercy. The dangerous, terrible thing and beautiful thing is that you have to entrust each other to each other. You have to lean on each other as stones built up to make a house. And stones are built to rub each other the wrong way, right? I'm sure there are people in this congregation that rub you the wrong way temperamentally. That's just the way it is in a church. But Christ says, I have given you my Holy Spirit. I've given you something to hold on to. That in the middle of the night when I need help, I can call my brother, deacon so-and-so, or I can call my pastor, I can call my friend, I can call the person who gets on my last nerve and say, man, I need help. I need someone to confess my sins to. I need someone when I fail and I don't know how to be a good husband or a good father or I'm struggling and I don't know how to lead at my job. I can't stand my boss. I have someone I can hold on to. It is the church. God has given his spirit to you so that you might be priests. You might be a treasured possession. Exodus 19, verse 6. It is the Holy Spirit. And because God has brought you to himself through one another, you can obey the covenant. And when you fail the covenant, you lean on each other as living stones. I want to remind you that God has routed the enemy. He has put Satan under your feet. I want to remind you that God has and will continue to care for you. He is not an evil God who's capricious and, and just does what kind of like the Greek gods do and just kind of just throw stuff and trials at you for no reason. No, God loves you. He's with you, carrying you on eagle's wings. And I want to remind you 
that you have somebody to hold on to. You have God in his word. You have God, his Holy Spirit, dwelling in each of you. The power that created the world, the power that rose Christ from the dead, dwells within each and every one of you. These are not words of condemnation. The Ten Commandments are not do's and don'ts. They are an expression of what it means to be a covenant people in love with a covenant God. They are not labors in slavery. They are labors of love. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have given us your covenant and you have come down to us in Christ Jesus, our perfect mediator who stands in the heavens praying for us. And he has not left us orphans. He has given us the Holy Spirit Spirit now, Lord, be with us. Help us to be courageous enough to lean on each other. To remember your great deeds of victory. To remember that you care for us. And to remember that you are with us presently through the body. Help us to trust you, Jesus. Not just believe, but to trust you. In Christ's name, amen.